Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Well, welcome. Welcome, everyone, to the Memorial Day edition of A Public Affair. I'm your guest host, David Ahrens. Memorial Day has come to mean many things mattress sales and patriotic parades, and a day off from work before we tip into the summer. But it's not a day to honor, excuse me, it's not a day to honor all veterans. That's Veterans Day in November. This is the day to remember and honor those who died in our wars, all of our wars. In search of U.S. wars, I found about 50 of them, starting with the American Revolution to dozens of wars against American Indians, the 30 years of wars in the Mideast, and of course the big ones, the Civil War and the World Wars. All in all, one and a half million Americans died and the same number were wounded. All of them sent willingly or unwillingly, to fight our many battles. But we're going to focus today on one of the big ones, World War I, a war that is unknown to most of us, other than it's the war that preceded World War II. It's either soldiers walking in jerking step, common in old movies, or the misery of men living for years in trenches. We're going to focus specifically on the U.S. participation in what was known at the time as the Great War, or the War to End All Wars, or the War to Make the World Safe for Democracy, and so on. We're going to be guided in our discussion by our guests, Ken Fitzsimmons and Sean Michael Dorgan. Ken and Sean are the writers, producers, and performers in The Greatest War, a part Celtic, part rock, documentary and multimedia exploration of the U.S. and particularly Wisconsin's participation in the war. Ken Fitzsimmons is known to many of us as the front man for the Kissers, a Celtic rock band that has played in the areas for many years. Ken was the artistic director of The Greatest War. Sean Michael Dargan is a singer and songwriter He was the marketing director of the show, wrote some of the songs, and also performed. He also plays the bagpipes. Well, welcome to Public Affair, Ken, Sean. Glad to have you. Thank you, David. Great to be here. Thanks, David. Good to to see you and uh, hear you. Um, Everybody's remote today. Uh, The Greatest War is billed as a rock and roll history of World War I. I listened again to the show and thought we can talk about The Greatest War through some of the songs because you did a really excellent job in um, getting to the causes of our participation and and really some of the effects of it. And it's really a, a, narr- a historical narration of, of the war. 
the first song uh, that we're going to play, and these these are just going to be um, something more than a snippet, a minute or two. Uh, the first song is "It's a Long Way to a World War." Um, the war's been going on for more than three years when the U.S. entered the war. Tens and millions of soldiers and civilians had already been killed, and both sides were slugging it out. Um, so we'll play a bit of the song, and then uh, you guys can talk about how this relates to the overall narrative. here that's patently absurd a globalized economy makes peace the final word plus everyone's related cousins nikki george and will they all love raising armies but don't worry even still for it's a long way to a world war it's a long way to go it's a long way to a world war from the sweetest peace we know. Goodbye, old feudal order. Hail, new global trade. It's a long, long way to a world war from the peace stand we've made. What's this? Have you heard? We just got word, friends. Joseph has been shot. Saying they should give up their monstrous plot, but the Russians have, for instance, Serbia and the, oh, this is terrible. I'm sorry. I'm going to take it from here. <laughs> but the Serbs have friends in Russia, and the Russians friends in France, and Germany's told Austria, "Mein Freund, on hold your pants, for it's a long way to a world war. It's a long way to go." So what's uh, what's the importance of that in terms of the story here of of the war and how we got into this? Uh, sure, I, I could answer that. This is Ken. Uh, so so um, <laughs> I'm laughing a little bit because poor Ryan. So that's the Viper in his famous orchestra out of, out of Milwaukee playing oh. that song, and um, and that's Ryan Jervig on on the vocals. And I, I actually wrote that song. Uh, for him, and and I have a tendency to write a lot of words, and, he, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, apologies to Ryan for that. Uh, but um, so you know, part of it was to be a little bit funny, and but you know, sort of that you know dark humor, which is you know certainly prevalent in the war itself, um, at least among soldiers. Um, so it's the melody of the song. It's a long way to Tipperary, which was a mm-hmm. you know a very popular song during the time, and that song is. You know, it's mainly covering the the actual beginning of World War One of nineteen fourteen, um, and I think that the you know so it, it sort of covers a little bit of the history. You know, the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand, and and talks about how. Um, but the the, the the bigger theme, the, it's a long way to a world war, um, is that the sense at that time that you know it, it, it was it was like the first globalized economy. There was a international postal service. You know. To, uh, telegraph wires going across the ocean like how could we possibly go to war with each other when we're so economically uh you know connected and yet everyone is also simultaneously building up their armies mm-hmm. <laughs> um and so that sort of disbelief which you know is it's almost hard to believe that now but i think 
that seemed to be a, the important, uh, I thought the important theme about the entrance to, to World War One, kind of from the layperson's point of view. And and it it expresses the the fact that this is something which is not here; it's there, and we wouldn't be involved with this, um, you know, foreign dispute. Well, yeah, right. That's right. It's literally a long way mm-hmm. uh, a ways. Right. That's sort of the uh, kind of the uh, you might say the extra extra overtone you get from it. Um, and, and certainly that was the feeling in, in the United States, you know, while while Europe is you know, tearing itself apart, uh, you know, we're happy to stay out of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, the, the, the second song is called um, Over the Top and. I guess this expresses um, our general sort of visual image of the war, which is, at least mine, is of miles and miles of trenches and filth and people, you know, dying and rotting in these trenches and occasionally going over the top and getting killed. Um, uh, so let's let's play uh, a minute or two of that and then uh, hear, hear your take on it. Well, that's as bleak as it probably <laughs> was a good representation <laughs> of yeah. uh, sort of the reality. So you wanna, could you guys uh, talk a bit about, you know, your thoughts in putting this one together? It has certainly a different, uh, it loses the Celtic uh, flavor uh, some, but it uh, it really that, that, effectively that banks band, it home. That's another Milwaukee band, uh, friends of ours, called the November Criminals. Mm. Um, that have uh, a whole repertoire of songs based on the war and the period and are actually huh. named after um, uh, what, what became a euphemism for the Germans who um, um, participated in the surrendering at the end of the war. Um, they, they were uh, dubbed by those that would later go on to be in the Third Reich as criminals because they, you know, they gave up. They gave up the country at the end mm-hmm. of the war mm-hmm. in their eyes. Um, but the band, the November Criminals, are just just fantastic. And I know they're friends of Ward as well. Um, they, uh, you know, they're an accordion-based uh, hip-hop band, which is <laughs> fa- fairly unusual. Uh, but they they bring uh, a, a real 
an honest and brutal power to the music that they write and play. And that, as you pointed out, I mean, that is a great description of what it would be like to be in a trench and be told that it's time to go over the top um, because over the top meant almost certain injury and probably death for so many of, of the guys uh, coming out of that trench. This is the first um, really modern mechanized war. It was the first war with machine guns and um, to come out over the top, you were just you're just you're just a man in your wool uniform uh, with a rifle and a bayonet and so much land to cover between your trench and the enemy trench and the odds of getting shot while you're trying to close that ground um, were incredibly high. And so the, the chaos and the fear is really transmitted in that song so well. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it's really a, a very powerful piece. I'd love to hear more from uh, the November Criminals. I'll check them out. Uh, next, we want to go to um, uh, the belly of the Lusitania. Uh, most of us, or at least I thought, um, that um, uh, sort of the sequence of events was the Lusitania was sunk and we went to war. Um, but apparently it wasn't that. And... Uh, uh, Sean wrote a song called The Belly of Lusitania. Let's listen to the first uh, two minutes of it, and then uh, Sean, you could talk about uh, what the meaning of the Lusitania was in this overall narrative. So what, what's the story behind that, the belly part, and how does the Lusitania fit into the war and, and the U.S. in the war? Sure. The, um, you know, the, the Lusitania was um, ostensibly uh, a cargo ship, um, uh, a, a, sh a troop ship um, at times, but it was supposedly um, not carrying any munitions was the official word, but um, perhaps, you know, we know by the way that the ship went down that um, 
the uh, there, there may have, in fact, been something in the hold that was not supposed to be there. Um, it wasn't uh, butter. It, the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the ship mm. was torpedoed and it sank in 18 minutes. And there were two explosions that were registered, even though only one torpedo was fired. Uh, so where did the second explosion come from? Was uh, was the question that was raised. Um, the sh the song I wrote the song as a conversation between um, you know the British and the Americans, um, the British looking to try to get the Americans to pull them into the fight on the side of the allies. Uh, the Americans had been very, um, well, just non-committal about it. They'd certainly sent, they did some lend-lease and some, sent some, uh, some, some, um, armor and some munitions over, but for the most part, they were not entering the war um, because there was no stomach for that sort of thing. And um, as has been proven, uh, throughout the years, a great way to get uh, a country to enter a war is to have one of the belligerents attack, you know, what at that point is a, um, a neutral nation, which mm -hmm. is what we were trying to be. And so um, there was some conversation about whether there were false flags involved as well with a British ship flying an American flag or an American ship flying a British flag. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, the, the German... Navy had, you know, they, they, the line is unrestricted submarines. The the U-boats, the underwater boats, the submarines of the German Navy at that point were wrecking havoc and terror on um, on all sorts of ships, not just military ships, as, but also uh, civilian ships as well. And so there, there was, um, uh, they they really had control of the waterways at mm -hmm. that point. And there were a lot of Americans on the ship. That was part absolutely. Of it. Yeah. So there were hundreds of Americans on the ship, uh, but we didn't go into the war right after this. Then not this right wasn't away. The, no. You know, it certainly the thing. helped gather steam for the uh, for the cause to go into the war, though. Mm -hmm. And um, and part of this also was, you know, sort of the, the American role was um, is that Americans, in addition to supplies and such for for Great Britain and France, we U.S. bankers lent them billions and billions of dollars, and I guess the United States government let th lent them billions of dollars as well. Um, well, let me uh, just take a break here, and uh, for those of you who are ju just tuning in, um, where uh, this is the Memorial Day edition of A Public Affair. I'm David Ahrens, your guest host, and I'm here today with... Uh, Ken Fitzsimmons and Sean Michael Dargan, who were the writers, producers, and the performers in The Greatest War, uh, which was a incredible show that was uh, performed in town here at the Barrymore a few years ago, and we'll talk more uh, about that. Let me also say that uh, this is a call-in show, so if you uh, have uh, questions or comments, or you're uh, lucky enough to see the show when it was performed uh, four years ago, uh, please give us a call and uh, get your uh, feedback on this. So, um, do I hear any phones? No. Okay, well, if, if we get any, we'll, uh, we'll listen to you and hear your comments about it. The next uh, number I wanted to play is... Um, is a traitor state. And 
Let's play the song, and then uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot to say uh, about that. So here we go. Why does the country want to go to war? Why don't you want to go to war? Oh, it's a step back for evolved society. It's a step forward for democracy. Let both sides talk until they work it out. They sunk our ships, the time to fight is now. This all seems to me so out of control. I live in Wisconsin, but others don't see it my way. Wisconsin, why can't you just see it our way? Don't fear Wisconsin, dissent is the American way. This is sedition, Wisconsin. Oh, we cut it just right before it said, Wisconsin, the traitor state. What's that about? So uh, the, the premise is, well, it was actually a quote out of a newspaper article. Um, I want to say like the Princeton Review. It's uh, out of Indiana, not, not uh, New Jersey. Um, but um, or Princeton, the, uh, it's, it's something called Princeton. Anyway, it said <laughs> something like, after the war, Will Wisconsin be known as the traitor state? Mm-hmm. And and so there, there's a couple reasons for this, uh, which is you know, the, the, really the main one is Bob LaFollette. Uh, you know, uh, Robert M. LaFollette, right, senator from Wisconsin, uh, was the biggest dissenting voice of the war, voted against it, stayed vehemently against it the entire duration was chastised for it uh uh, extraordinarily so much so that other senators even apologized after the war to him for for how they treated him um and and in addition to bob lafollette you know he's got his constituents of course in the state of wisconsin which there are both uh many socialists in in um in Wisconsin, especially in the Milwaukee area, and especially many, many German Wisconsinites. Um, who so we were, were, we were sort of perceived as traitors for not only did we have this dissenting senator, but we had a lot of Germans. So sort of yeah. a fifth column kind of. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, in the, in the, in the show we had, uh, it was a multimedia show, right? So we played yes. in front of this 20 foot video wall, which, which was really powerful, um, put together by uh, Jason Fassel and his, company anti-shadows and it was um we we displayed this uh picture of it was a map of wisconsin by the uh, the, the wisconsin loyalty league i think was the the organization yes. and it mm-hmm. and it listed you know had circles in all the areas of of you know, disloyalty in wisconsin um so that so that's the that's sort of the premise and the 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 the, the, the kind of like with sean's song this is a, a dialogue you can kind of hear it it's, it's sort of the in my mind, I was taking I was taking a little bit of my own experience of when we went to the into the Iraq War, of just experiencing when the pro-war movement begins, and then you you're the in the anti-war side, and all of a sudden anything you say is just unpatriotic, or you know you're just you're just helping the enemy, hmm. and and this you know absolutely no common ground at all. Um, so I wanted to sort of capture that as well. Um, it is it is. I should mention um, 
uh, how, that, that's that's the premise of that song. Though Wisconsin, this isn't in the song, but when Wisconsin did actually go to the war, Wisconsin was very much a participant in the war. <laughs> um, there was no, I mean, the, the the people who remained against it certainly still did, but Wisconsin it was almost like to try to make up for this reputation that that you know, we we worked the hardest to like fulfill our our enlistment numbers the fastest of any other state. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And thousands died as a result of that uh, certainly you yeah. know, movement into the war and um, right. uh, but that the whole traitor thing was. Um, that's something that has faded over time, I guess. Um, it, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there were other congressmen who voted against the war, too. Weren't there other socialists or they, opponents? They were, yeah, and I'm going to remember their names, but there were a, yeah. a few Berger. senators. Victor Berger was... Victor Berger was in the House. Yes. Right? So, mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah, so you've been in the House, and I think he was still... Was he still seated at that time? He got removed um, uh, by the House. Uh, but um, uh, but yes, he was opposed to the war. There was the the congresswoman, the only woman in Congress at the time from Montana. I'm I again I mm-hmm. apologize for forgetting her name, but she voted against Rankin. the war as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. The few, very few, very few who would you know, it's difficult <laughs> to be uh, you know on the floor probably with the uh, 300 people you know waving flags and. Oh, tremendously, tremendously. I mean, I mean, they were quite literally, like I said about Bob Lafayette, quite literally chastised. Many of them, and it was not just chastised. People were getting sent to prison, yes. um, uh, including Victor Berger. Uh, and, um, you know, Eugene Debs was is one of the more famous ones. Mm-hmm. But they were many people who were either even just conscientious objectors or if you said because of the... Um, the Espionage Act and then the Sedition Act. I think I have that in the wrong order. Sedition Act first and then the Espionage Act. Anyway, there were two acts, and it essentially made things legal. Mm-hmm. And, and even in the privacy of your own home. You know, mm-hmm. if you said something like, I don't, I don't think this war is such a good idea, you could literally be sent to prison for that. Yeah. It sort of <laughs> takes me back to Russia in 2023. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, a similar. It, it's definitely one of the thing. right. It's a period of of the greatest infringement of civil rights uh, in the United States. It's it's one it's one of the top mm-hmm. moments, challenges of democracy for sure. Yes, yeah. Well, let's uh, move on. And there's a, another sort of facet of how the war and I think changed society. And this gets to you know why this is relevant, uh, why it's worth. Uh, you know, looking at and studying and enjoying that there were, you know, I guess more than a million men had joined the army or the armed forces by that time, by 1917 or 18. And so women had to go into the industrial workforce. Um, And there's uh, a song, um, one of the numbers on in the show is uh, she works on cars. And so we'll play a piece of that now. She cleans shrapnel shards and a gonna leave a scar. She talks to the boys, seems to bring a lot of joy. She writes letters for them with a paper and a pen. And when their eyes go dim, calls the chaplain in. She helps him learn how a soldier can return to a civilian life. 
with his children and his wife. No bombs are there, there's no reason to be scared. She lets it be known what it means to be at home. You think she sees her that? Do you think he is aware? Do you think he notices she's gone? Do you think he sees her that? So, if you work on cars, he loses his love. Is that the story here? <laughs> well, so, so you know, we all know the image of Rosie the Riveter yes. from World War II, um, but that actually started in World War One. And I was inspired by an exhibit at the Wisconsin Historical Society, um, which was a pictures of what women were doing during the war. And the, the, the image that really struck me was it was, uh, it was a, woman, a woman lying on her back in a shop under a car. I think she's wearing a dress. Um, <laughs> it's, it's dirty, and she's wrenching, you know, wrenching a car. Uh-huh. And, and um, so... You know, that, that started the whole thing. She works on cars, puts her back into the bar, lifts the drawbridge high, lets the boat go sailing by, just thing after thing after thing that she's doing. Um, but a big part of the show, you know, the, the tagline was, it was the greatest war, Wisconsin, World War I, Wisconsin, and why it still matters. And I had some uh, long conversation with my wife, Maggie, who, um, who directed me to a podcast, uh, Dear Sugars <laughs> podcast, and there was an episode about... Uh, uh, the invisible labor that women do. And this is mainly speaking to uh, uh, m- mothers in, in, in heterosexual households, okay? Uh-huh. Um, but, like, all of the management, emotional management they do with the whole, the whole house, um, both emotional and physical. Uh-huh. And, and so, and I just kind of thought, you know, I bet that hasn't really changed that much either <laughs> since then. And so there are other lines in the song about, you know, keeps the bank account in line, you know, brings the doctor in, you know, mm-hmm. hugs her boy when he cries at night, prays to God they don't send him to the war. Um, and so, um, you know, it's this, this idea that... But that, uh, that, had been, that had been sort of the woman's role for hundreds of years. But, I mean, what's happening here is women are leaving their homemaking role and going into an industrial workforce for the first time. I mean, that's right. They become right. wage earners. Uh, like right. The men. Right. That's, that, the, that's the break here, right? Yes, absolutely. Before this, women are basically school teachers or yeah, nurses. Nurses, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, there were many, many nurses that served in the war. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Like going and working in shops, on trains, like you said, entering the workforce. Absolutely. And, and it's a huge... It's a huge, there's, a, there's another story here. Um, it's a line in there, you know, she you know, puts the cargo on the boat, but she doesn't get to vote, mm-hmm. uh, is, a, mm-hmm. is a line in that song, which, yes. which there's a, another part to this story where they say, okay, we did our part, you know, mm-hmm. we helped you win the war, now let's, let's get the vote, which of course they, uh, after yeah. a long struggle, do get. Yeah. Uh, let me just remind folks that um, you can, this is a public affair. Uh, we're talking about the greatest war with uh, Sean Michael Dargan and Ken Fitzsimmons. Um, and we're talking about World War One, not a 
often topic these days, but still, as we've been talking about, very relevant to our time. You can call us at 256-2001-Extension9 if you want to get in on the conversation. Um, Now, most of the European theater of the war, and people forget that there was huge parts of the war that didn't take place in Europe. It took place in Africa and the Middle East and other places. Um, uh, But we, of course, think of it as just in Europe. But to the degree that the European war was extant, it was fought in France. And um, uh, we have, uh, as one of the numbers on the uh, show, a really interesting interpretation of the of the Marseillaise by Hannah John Taylor. So uh, let's listen to uh, some of that. we had a little more time for uh, to hear more of that. It's a great uh, piece. Do you want to talk about uh, Marseillaise and how uh, Hannah John Taylor got involved with this, uh, your work? Well, uh, a big part of the, the story we wanted to include was, uh, you know, African Americans in the war and uh, a, a story that, that emerges or, or some, some people that really you know, have some limelight are the they're called the the Harlem Harlem Hellfighters is their nicknames. The 369th Infantry out of I think New York, and um, and it's an all all black regiment. And the the irony is that they are not actually allowed to fight in the U.S. Army. They actually fight under the with the French, um, <laughs> and uh, they're they're an incredibly uh, successful. You know, they have the most number of days. Uh, 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 what is it? Successive days in combat of any other unit, American unit. I can't remember what it was, but it's something crazy. It's like a hundred days or something. Um, and they they also get. Um, I don't know that they get any medals of honor, but they get a, a huge number of croix de guerre, the, the highest honor in the French army. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's even you know this and then and then out of this is a musical story, which is James Reese Europe, um, who's a band leader of, and it's all, all members from that regiment. And it's, they're basically a marching band and they play this marching band music in France, but they're doing something weird to it. Like they're swinging the notes or something hmm. and people are going nuts about it over there and they love it. And some people are listening to them and thinking like, you can't, what are they doing? Like they're looking at their music and they're trying to understand how are they playing this? And, and they're, you know, they're 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 playing what's what's going to become you know, going to be known as jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, so so that's a huge you know it's a, a huge story on on two fronts. So Hana was a sort of a natural fit for that. It's like well 
Hana, you know, can you speak to this? And he's you know, you go into his club, Cafe Coda, and he's got a picture of James Europe's band right there in the in the club. It's like, can you just talk about this? Talk about that time. And and he was, you know, he did a little dialogue before that, and he talked about how, you know, these black soldiers went and they, you know, and they fought and they fought for fought for democracy, and then came home to to Jim Crow, and certainly weren't experiencing democracy at home. Right. Immediately um, after the World War War was the big resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan. You know, it was right. in 1919 was, you know, sort of the peak and, you know, thousands of Klan members marched down uh, East Wash uh, here in Madison. Mm. Um, let's uh, just go through one more piece and then I, I want to talk about the sh- just how we got to the show, okay? Um, and uh, we're going to hear uh, They Made a Peace. Well, they all made a peace in Paris. At Versailles, Trianon, St. Sherman, Sevres, ain't we? At Moudrost, Breshly, Tost, and Riga, Compiègne, and Lausanne, and we go all in together for the peace. Well, they made a peace for Greece in Paris. Britain and for France, a little piece for Italy. Here's what's yours, here's what's mine, here's what's mandatory. Palestine will never, no more worry about the peace. Were you there when Mr. Wilson stood up tall? And said a cleaner, saner world was in the grasp of one and all. Were you there? Were you there, my friend? When the world was in the grasp of some of all. And we knew there'd be some bumps along the way. But the West would do its best to help the rest out for a day. Or for four, maybe more. The Dutch know what the fudge we're fighting for. We're all in for a peace in Perry. Minor foreboding. <laughs> Just a minor foreboding. <laughs> yeah, I guess, uh, well, do you want to talk about the foreboding part? Well, <laughs> there, there's another war that happens right on the heels oh, of what this was that? one. <laughs> uh, yeah, right, exactly. And set up, set up um, pretty neatly by um, the way World War One was wrapped up. Uh, again, uh, remi- reminding you of the November criminals. Um, in in the eyes of many Germans, the um, German generals who were selected to represent the country um, uh, there in Versailles, it was. Uh, they were traitors they, because they gave up the uh, gave up the the spirit of the war at that point. Even though you know the war was was a horrible horrible thing on all sides, still they they did not smile upon the German generals who um, actually executed the surrenders. Um, the um, that, that's the Viper and his orchestra again. Oh. Uh, just mm-hmm. fantastic, um, Ryan, such a great vocalist and uh, great player. Um, and his band is just incredible. Rob Hen on that trombone solo that was starting right then. Um, the um, his original song. Yeah, yeah, yeah he, that he wrote. He wrote that. Sure. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you know, it's worth noting. I, I didn't I didn't mention this early on, but one of the truly horrific and ironic things about the um, start of this war and thus the war itself and leading through the end of it is just we, we talked about how it's a long way to a world war because everyone was so intertwined. The czar of Russia, the Kaiser of Germany and the king of England were literally all first cousins and friends with each other just just as tight and friendly as family can be and um it made it all the more brutal uh to see it go down the way that it did yes um yeah 40 million um and when you think about you know what was the cause of it was you know some nobleman or royalty gets knocked off in a parade and then the world plunges into um you know a death trap it's just uh incredible so anyway we're um i wanted to really talk a bit about the show uh again which is um what's the uh, what's the relevance of the of the war today why are we talking about it why did you go through this incredible effort of of you know writing this music and assembling this show what was the driver here sure so you know i i've i'm a i'm a uh hobbyist historian you know um i'm certainly not a trained historian uh music is my field but i used to read about wars right and i'd go to the bookstore and i would see you know I'd, the big long shelf about the civil war and then there's the big long one about world war ii you know, my grandfather was a pow you know so would read all about these things. And then, you know, one day noticed, you know, in between those two was a, 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 just a few books about, you know, the First World War or World War I. And I thought, wow, that's an awfully ominous title for war <laughs> to have such a small amount of literature. And so, you know, I think I grabbed, it was probably John Keegan's First World War. It was probably the first book I read. And uh, I read it and, and, what happens is, you know, like barroom conversations about World War I tend to be uh, on the battlefield. You know, what, what if Hitler had attacked London in 1940 or, or, you know, what if, you know, this and that. But when you talk about World War I, it's, so why did that war happen? And it's a much difficult, much more difficult conversation to have because it's, it's, it's a lot more complicated or at least strange and, and hard to understand. And, and, and most people can agree that World War II was a pretty much a direct, uh, you know, directly caused or certainly indirectly caused by World War I. And so doesn't it seem to be important to know why this all started in the first place? <laughs> um, and so there's a long rabbit hole that you go down yeah. <laughs> when you start to learn about the war. Um, was World War I, how, I mean, people after the war or until World War II came around, they didn't talk about it as World War I. Um, right. Was it called the Great War? Was that sort of the common yeah. verbiage? Yes. For... It was called for the sure. Great War. Yeah, H.G. Yeah. Wells is the one who called it the it was called, actually called it the War to End War, mm-hmm. which I thought, when you hear the exact quote, it's even got a little more poignancy to it, right? Um, because, yeah, the Great War, and actually there are plenty of quotes like from soldiers who call it like the greatest of all wars, you know, it seemed, because it, it was at that point, mm-hmm. nobody had ever seen anything like this. But yeah. yes, the great war was it's, or the world war. Yeah. 
Um, is there any uh, plans or um, let me just uh, back up for folks who don't know. I mean, I, I think I mentioned that this these songs and this show was performed in Madison, um, uh, I guess, on Veterans Day in 2018, was it? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, Was there any performance of the show after that? We did one. We did one uh, performance as well the following year uh, at Shannon Hall at the University of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Um, It was uh, you know a a little a bigger a little bit bigger venue than the Barrymore and um, a different. uh, We also brought our 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 great video wall. Jason assembled the video wall for us a second time. And um, we we actually reprised it briefly um, um, at the Edgewater once, uh, just snippet sort of a greatest hits. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And are you, uh, Sean? Are you doing any work on uh, on this Memorial Day or um, anything relevant to the significance of the day? I actually am. Uh, I, I'm playing. I, I bagpipe for the Veterans for Peace oh. at the Gate, Gates of Heaven Synagogue every Memorial Day, and I'll be doing that briefly in a couple of hours. And then right after that, uh, my band is playing our famous Vietnam set, uh, sort of same same kind of deal, but um, you know, several years later, mm-hmm. uh, playing the music of the Vietnam era at the also at the Edgewater Hotel outside by the lake there. Oh, is that tonight, or maybe I'll go to? It that. is. It's this afternoon. We there's a big band playing music from the 40s and 50s, uh, starting at two, and then my band playing songs from the 60s and 70s, starting at four. Oh, great. Okay. Well, thanks for that. Uh, sure. Note. Um, um, so, how come you haven't? <laughs> I mean, I went to the Barrymore show, and it was sold out, and um, people were. Uh, excited about it, excited before, after. Uh, uh, was there a sense that this is going to be a, a one-off and we're not doing this anymore, or is there plans to do something else like it or the same thing again? Well, I, I'm so glad you asked that, David. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, we, you know, we rep- as Sean said, we reprised it a, a, a year later, and and we we, we it reinforced what we already knew which was the greatest war was by design a commemorative event not really a uh touring sort of act you might say or um a repeatable act uh just because it involved so many different people and so many different musicians and all the things that made it great um also make it hard to repeat um Mm -hmm. and um not to say we won't do it again because it, it keeps coming up and and we all loved it and i'm you know um but what uh, we're doing, you know, um, the, another, the other person who was really instrumental in this is John Wedge, uh, who, who needs to be mentioned too, the, the co-producer. Um, and we also uh, worked with Sarah Marty in Four Seasons Theater um, with all the, the major players. And uh, I'm, I'm working on a new show, and I won't talk a bunch about it, but I'll just say it's a, it's a show about the year after the war, as you mentioned, 1919. Hmm. Um, and so kind of what we learned both from the history and from putting on a show like this. <laughs> so it's going to be sort of a similar type of show, um, but it's going to be tourable so it can travel around the, the state. Mm-hmm. So the 1919 is um, the Red Scares and Ku Klux Klan. It's just sort of a, a grim uh, year. Was yeah. that the year of the Tulsa 
Uh, it's not Tulsa's in, in 1921, 21, uh, yeah. but but the Red Summer, uh, so-called by uh, uh, James Weldon Johnson, uh, is is you know the the multiple race riots that happen uh, around the country, mm-hmm. uh, uh, often with returning uh, African American soldiers. Um, there's uh, women's suffrage gets finally passed by Congress that year, and then the ratification process begins. There's a huge number of labor strikes, strikes that right, year. Right. Uh, it's right. quite a. Um, it, it's interesting to think of that as um, what gave rise to this incredible combustion, you know, of of energy at so many different points, you know, socially yeah. and politically. That mm-hmm. this had to be as a result of the war um, well, and the people coming back from the war. Yeah, and the pandemic. And of right. course, and we had the Spanish flu as well. Yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. so the so-called Spanish flu, right? That actually probably started right. in Kansas. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> damn Spaniards. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They, their government would talk about it. I've, in fact, there's a song in the new show called "Don't Talk About the Flu." Mm-hmm. Um, and and so you know, it's great. It's great suffering. You know, sort of so great suffering or great love that creates the most transformation. And and people came out of this war realizing feeling empowered right i i deserve i deserve more i deserve to vote i deserve to be treated like a human i deserve better wages uh to to get to work less and and of course those sort of fundamental issues create an incredible backlash which had a lot of fuel from the war these loyalty leagues essentially like vigilante groups that were seeking out German spies during the war, mm-hmm. then turned their eyes to, to Bolsheviks. Right. Anarchists. And, you know, <laughs> right. And anarchists. Right. Which there are, there are a few, yes. there are a few bomb scares, but there are, uh, there are just a tiny number of people, mm. but it gets blown up as though anarchists are everywhere and everyone's trying to overthrow the government. Antifa. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's really parallel to the, you know, the constant Trump and others saying that, you know, this happens, this happens. Oh, it's Antifa. Nobody, no, you know, has never well, really identified any person as such. But I mean, it's yeah, exactly. It's behind exactly. every There's, bush, you know. Right, right. And so it was sort of riding that, um, that, uh, that fear, um, and and so it becomes this. It's it's incredibly. And there's actually, you know, the, the there's a, there's a lot to it. But um, and there's actually some some really powerful things that happened in a positive way because of all that. Um, but but many people are are continue to be chastised or, or, or deported or imprisoned in 1919 as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. So, so it's this is an, another piece in the works, and we'll see it sometime. Sometime. Some, I guess. Sometime in the near future. Yeah. <laughs> okay. it's, it's, I, we don't yeah. have a performance date yet. It's it's in the in about about one one and a half acts or so are, are written at this point. Yeah. Uh, Sean, do you have any uh, sort of uh, Retrospective views of of what this was like, what this meant, uh, the greatest war in the show. It was <laughs> it was an honor to be a part of. It was such a, a Herculean undertaking. Uh, Ken mentioned our friend and colleague John Wedge. Um, John and Ken and I um, really dreamed this up big time, based solely on the work that Ken had done probably 10 years before working on a film about World War One oh. he hasn't even mentioned yet but it was uh, it was a film that we um, we tried to make and uh, got to some degree of success on but never never uh, finished it but there was so much um, 
we had done so much research on it, Ken and and myself to some extent, but mostly Ken. Um, and then John and I kind of helped him pick up the gauntlet and decided that we could turn this into a live, what we call, what we, you know, decided was going to be a rock and roll history show. <laughs> and, um, and we really liked the sound of that. Uh, I was actually living in California the year that we did all the planning for this. Um, so it, we did so much of this um, via Zoom and phone call, uh, you know, it was prescient. Uh, the work we did sort of predated the COVID mm -hmm. experience, mm -hmm. but it was very much like what we would do later. Mm -hmm. um, but the the show, I, you mentioned I play bagpipes um, during the very final um, one of the final acts of, of the show. Um, we run a a scroll, a scrim. Um, a tr uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Uh, it's we scroll the names mm -hmm. of every Wisconsinite yeah. who oh. uh, lost their life in the war, um, and uh, and I play uh, the flowers of the forest on pipes um, while that's happening, yeah. and it's it's just it's beautiful. It is yeah. overwhelmingly emotional. It's yeah. such a poignant yeah. uh, time of the show. Yeah. Um, I'm just crying while I play, oh. and you know it's. Um, but it was such an honor to be part of and such a joy to work with Ken and John and Jason and Sarah and, and, and all the artists that were involved mm -hmm. in the show. It was it was definitely bigger than the sum of the parts when yeah. we were finished. Yeah. So we're um, nearing the end of the hour, and I want to thank our guests today. Um, this has been so interesting to me, and I hope to you, um, the writers and and the producers and the performers, John Wedge and people who aren't here today, uh, of The Greatest War, Ken Fitzsimmons and Michael Dargan. Uh, I also want to many thanks to the producer of A Public Affair, uh, Jade Isri Ramos, and, and, and Andrew was our engineer, and he was ready to handle the phones today, but uh, that didn't just happen. Uh, I'm your host, uh, David Ahrens, and um, stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat. Uh, we'll listen to Stu Levitin interview the author of A Brave, Lovely Woman uh, with the author Mark Borthwick. Hey, have a great day, great Memorial Day, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs>